And for the rest of us this morning, we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament in the book of 1 Timothy, in addition to setting aside some time for communion at the end of our service. Uh, We've got a lot to get through, and so let's get right to it. Uh, If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Last week, we noted how Paul changed his focus from chapter 4 to chapter 5. In chapter 4, Paul was focused upon the minister, but in chapters 5 and 6, Paul focuses in upon the ministry. And last week, we noted how we're to treat one another in the ministry, how we're to treat each other as if we are family. For truly, we have all been adopted into the family of God, and we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so when it comes to dealing with one another in the ministry, in the church, we're to treat each other like family. After referring to how we're to treat each other in general, Paul focused in upon how we are to treat a specific group of individuals within the church, namely the widows within the church. And Paul gave clear instruction upon how the widows were to be treated and provided for. Paul was clear to state that the first and foremost, uh, that first and foremost, the primary caregiver and provider for widows was to be their immediate family, uh, their uh, children, their grandchildren. But if there wasn't any family around to help take care of them, then the church was to step in and do what it could to assist them. Paul gave Timothy some good instruction upon how to choose which widows were fit for receiving honor and care from the church. Not all the widows were to be taken in and supported by the church, only certain ones that met certain parameters. And so we looked at all of that last week. If you missed it, you're interested in knowing more about that topic, I encourage you to check out our website uh, where we post all of our teachings for those of you who have Uh, missed. Uh, So today in our account, we're going to be once again looking at another particular group within the ministry and how we are to interact with them, how we are to treat them. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His holy word? I'm going to read through our text this morning from my Bible. I want to encourage you all to do your best to follow along in your own Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Paul gives Timothy the following instructions regarding elders in ministry, beginning with verse 17. He writes, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to once again just open your word and allow your word to speak to us, to minister to us, to mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we come this morning just yielded to you and your word, asking that you would uh, just continue to to do the work that you've begun in us. And Lord, um, I pray that you would give us um, hearts that are ready to receive all that you have. 
and that we would take what we receive and we would apply it to our lives, put these words into action as best as we can. And so lead us and guide us in that. Give us your strength uh, to do so. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. As I mentioned, Paul once again focuses in upon another particular group within the ministry and how we're to interact with them, how we're to treat them. In our text, Paul gives us instructions regarding the elders in the church. And so uh, the title of our study this morning, quite simply, is Elders in Ministry. Okay? Now, when referring to the elders of the church, we're not simply talking about the older people, okay? but specifically we're talking about the church leadership, the elders, the presbyteros in the Greek. Uh, now, back in chapter 3, Pastor Nick taught about the qualifications of these church leaders, but there Paul used the Greek word episkopos, translated as bishop or overseer in the English. Paul actually uses these words interchangeably at various times throughout Scripture. When addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he referred to the same group of men as both elders, presbyteros, and overseers, episkopos. Uh, In Titus chapter 1, Paul mentioned how Titus was to appoint elders, presbyteros, over every city, and then in describing the traits of these elders, he refers to them as bishops or episkopos in the Greek. It's plain to see from Scripture that these words are used interchangeably and that they both refer to positions of leadership within the church. Today, we would maybe just refer to them more commonly as pastors, okay? Um, These are the people given the responsibility of the care, instruction, and overall development of the church body and ministry. And Paul has some instructions here in our text for Timothy as it pertains to pastors or church elders and leaders that Timothy needs to make sure he passes on to the church there in Ephesus and by extension to us today here in Iwakuni. This is information for us all, okay? Not just for me, (laughs) although it's good for me too, all right? Uh, Very good. Now, for those of you who like to take notes or outline our text, I've taken the liberty of breaking up our text into three major sections, okay? Three major sections. First section is going to be verses 17 and 18. It's going to deal with compensating elders. The second section in verses 19 through 21 is going to deal with correcting elders. And then the third and final section of our text from verses 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 25, is going to deal with choosing elders. Okay. In each section, we'll look to understand the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy and hopefully be able to make some application to our own lives and how we treat elders and leaders within the church. So let's dive into our first section here, dealing with compensating elders in verses 17 and 18. Read those verses again with me. Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul opens up his instructions to Timothy regarding church elders by stating how they are to be counted worthy of double honor. Now, some have speculated as to what exactly Paul meant by double honor. Uh, Some suggest that it means high regard or respect, that they are to be revered twice as much as others within the church. But That doesn't seem to make sense based upon the context and what Paul later warns Timothy about when it comes to not showing 
partiality in the church. Hey? We are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so to, to interpret this to say, oh, these people need to be revered uh, twice as much as everybody else doesn't seem to really fit. Okay? Some suggest that it's speaking about both honor or respect in addition to some sort of physical compensation. Last week when we looked at the widows and the instructions that Paul had for Timothy to honor widows who are really widows, we noted how that word honor can be used to speak about compensation, that the widows were to be compensated physically and financially supported by the church. And so some hold to the view that this is speaking about how the elders in the church are to be counted worthy of double honor, both respect and compensation of some form. Some go as far as to say that this is only speaking about compensation and that the elders in the church should be making twice as much as everyone else in the church. And that sounds kind of nice, but um, that's not, I don't believe that's what's meant here at all. Okay? But sadly, there are a great many of pastors and church leaders have abused the churches they minister to and have fleeced the flock of God, trying to use this verse as evidence for why they need to be paid outrageous amounts of money. Okay, it's ridiculous, but sadly, it is something that you can still see happening today uh, in churches around the world. People, churches being fleeced by elders and pastors who demand a high wage. Now, it's my belief that what Paul is talking about here is more in line with the second option. Okay, that the elders in the church are to be respected, they're to be honored, Okay, and that they are to be compensated financially. The context here seems to clearly support this idea. Now, Paul says that this double honor was not meant to be given blindly to any and all elders, but gives two criteria to be used in determining whether or not an elder was to be counted worthy of it. Okay, the first thing Paul mentions is how the elder is to be counted worthy if the elder rules well. Now, the word rule is not meant to suggest an authoritarian type of dictatorship that lords over the church body. That is the way of the world. Okay? Back in Mark's gospel, we read about a time when the disciples were arguing amongst each other over who was the greatest. Uh, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, had tried to make a power play for seats of honor, and when the other 10 disciples heard about it, well, things got pretty heated uh, between the disciples. And that is when Jesus said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And he says, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But then he says to them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be the first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so for those who rule in the church, okay, those who are given places of authority, they are to be servants. They are to follow the example of their Lord and Savior who didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so those who rule well are those who do a good job at ministering to and serving the needs within the body of Christ. Those who rule well in the church are those who serve in humility, okay, with a servant's heart, not looking to be served, not looking to be lifted up, but being the kind of person willing to stoop down and to do the work 
of a servant. Okay, that's what it means to rule well. The second thing Paul mentioned in connection to being counted worthy of this double honor was if the elder labored in the word and doctrine. When Paul refers to the word and doctrine, he's referring to the preaching and teaching of God's word. These elders are described as laboring in the preaching and teaching of God's word. The word labor doesn't simply mean that they you know, get up and they read the word or share something from the word. The word labor carries the idea of toil, okay, of becoming worn out and fatigued, okay, wearied from exhaustion. Uh, these are pastors and leaders who spend countless hours in prayer and in the reading and studying of God's word prior to ever stepping behind the pulpit. Okay? They are reading through portions of Scripture, doing word studies, looking at tons of cross-references, understanding similar portions of Scripture that they may bring forth a balanced and accurate presentation of God's Word. They are praying and asking God to show them what it is uh, that He would have them to share and to present to the body. And by the time they finish bringing forth God's Word, they're exhausted, and they're wearied, and they're fatigued, okay? And they need a good Sunday afternoon nap, okay? I love my Sunday afternoon naps, okay? These are the kinds of elders who Paul singles out as being worthy of double honor, of both respect and compensation. Now, as a way to further support the notion that elders should be financially compensated for ruling well and laboring in the word and doctrine, Paul uses the Old Testament scriptures to help prove his point. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, where he speaks about an ox and how it should not be muzzled while it treads out the grain. Okay, the idea here is that as the ox was yoked to a millstone of some sorts, treading out the grain, that the ox was permitted to partake of some of the grain that fell to the ground as he worked. Now, Paul actually gives his own commentary on these verses in the book of 1 Corinthians after quoting this same verse in his writing to them. He quotes the same exact verse in 1 Corinthians 9. He writes, Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should partake, be partaker of his hope. He continues referencing his own labor there in Corinth, saying, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And then in the next verse, he writes, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Paul also says that the scriptures affirm that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, interestingly, this is not a direct quote from anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. There are verses that talk about not cheating people from their wages, like uh, Leviticus 19.3, Deuteronomy 24.15, Jeremiah 22.13. Okay, but there's not a direct quote from Old Testament scripture. However, it is a direct quote of the words of Jesus Christ himself. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was instructing his disciples before sending them out to minister to the masses, and he told them they were to go from town to town and look for houses that were willing to take them in, and he instructed them, remain in the same house 
eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. By the time of Paul's writing the book of 1 Timothy, most believe that the gospel of Luke had been in circulation for a few years. And so this could be Paul referring to his good friend and co-laborer, Luke's gospel account as scripture, or it could simply be a summation of Old Testament scriptures that clearly teach this principle. Obviously, it was something that Jesus taught as well. Either way, we see uh, and understand the biblical principle at work here. A laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay? If someone works, well, then they should be compensated for that work. All right? We, I, don't, I don't think we have any problems with that, right? We agree with that. Okay? Now, some will try to say that pastors and church leaders should not be financially supported by the local church, and those people will sometimes use Paul as an example for why they think that way. Paul often made it a point of emphasis to not receive financial support from the various churches that he served at. Instead, he would look to support himself through his own means by working a secondary job. Paul was a tent maker by trade, and he would go into various cities and towns and use that trade as a way to support himself in the ministry. And so some say that pastors and church leaders today should do the same, that they should get paid for serving God and God's people, and that they should work a tent making job, uh, which basically means a job that you do on the side to help support yourself. That's the Christianese that we use to talk about that, okay? But we have to understand, you guys, that just because Paul didn't usually receive financial support doesn't mean that he was opposed to the idea of elders being financially compensated for the work as a minister. In fact, though he didn't seek after it himself, Paul did, in fact, receive financial support from some of the churches that he ministered to. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, he talked about how he preached the gospel to them free of charge and how he was forced to take wages from the other churches in order for him to do so. He even said he had to rob other churches uh, so that he could minister in Corinth because they weren't financially supporting him. Paul specifically highlighted how the church in Philippi financially supported him on multiple occasions, sending him aid once and again for his necessities. Not only did Paul receive financial support at times, but he also spoke very clearly of the responsibility churches had to properly care for and support those who ministered to them. I already quoted from Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he spoke on this. He also writes in Galatians, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. In Romans, Paul teaches about how the Gentiles were indebted to the saints in Jerusalem, for the saints sowed into their lives spiritually, and as such, it was their duty to minister to them in material things. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul urged the church there to recognize those who labored among them and were over them in the Lord and who admonished them, and they were to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And so it's very clear from Paul's own writings that he taught and believed that an elder should be compensated for their work, that they had a right to it. Now, that doesn't mean that pastors should go around demanding to be paid or asking to be better compensated than what they are. One of the requirements for being a leader in the church Uh, was that they not be greedy for money, okay, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. We looked at that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, okay? Look, some churches 
do not have the financial capacity to pay their pastors and leaders a salary. And so that pastor will need to get some sort of tent-making job in the meantime and trust that in God's timing and in God's provision, God will make a way for them. And so this does happen in churches, um, but it's not um, necessarily what is best or what's described biblically, okay? Paul's point and emphasis here is that Timothy teach the important truth that those who serve the local body as elders, and they do so well, that they should be supported by the local body, right? That support comes through the financial gifts that you all provide, all right? When you give your tithe to the Lord through this church, or you give a love offering of some kind to this church, you are putting into the pot that goes to support what we do here, including, but not limited to the wages of our staff. And by the grace of God, the money that you all provide has proven to be enough to, to pay the rent, to pay the utilities, okay, and all the other expenses involved in maintaining and operating this ministry, including enough for my family and I to be fully funded and supported uh, by this church. Okay, we don't have any outside financial supporters that support us. Okay, we are fully supported by the tithes and offerings that come into this church. Uh, but in addition to my family, we were able to also bring on Cannon and his family as fully supported missionaries. And so uh, we don't take that support for granted. Uh, we are humbled. We are grateful for the opportunity God has provided through you all for us to be able to fully engage in ministering to the needs of the body. And my hope is that we do so well, okay? that you all are, are blessed by our service and that you are growing in the Lord uh, and during your time here in Iwakuni. And so, let's take a look at our next section, dealing with correcting elders in verses 19 through 21. Follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Paul writes, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Here in these verses, Paul brings up the ugly topic of church discipline when it comes to those who lead within the church. Listen, no one is perfect. Uh, even elders and pastors still sin. We fall short and continually need the grace of God to cover over us. We are not above the law. We are not without the need for accountability. We are expected to live a life that is set apart for the Lord and can be used as an example for others to follow in. And all that being said, there are times when church discipline may need to take place. And Paul gives Timothy some wise counsel regarding how to deal with correcting elders. The first thing Paul says is that any accusations against an elder are not to be received without two or three witnesses. This practice of needing witnesses has its roots in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 19, we read, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If someone was to bring any sort of accusation against a pastor or an elder, they needed to bring with them witnesses to corroborate their story. Uh, you see, sometimes okay, criticism against an elder may arise for wrong reasons or impure motives, and there needed to be something in place to help protect elders from these sorts of situations. 
Sometimes someone may simply not like a person, and so they can bring false allegations against them. Sometimes they may feel slighted by their pastor or another leader in the church, and so they may over-exaggerate or insinuate things that aren't necessarily true. They may not like something he said or taught, and so they want to get him removed from his position. Sometimes people do these things out of jealousy, feeling that they should be the one leading the church. You see, there are all sorts of reasons why someone may feel the need to bring an accusation against an elder. Some will be pure, but others will not be. And we need to understand and realize there is a huge target on the back of every pastor and leader within an effective church ministry. I say effective because if you're not being effective, the enemy's not worried about you, okay? The enemy knows that if they can get the leaders to fall, oftentimes many in the church will follow after. Even if the pastor or leader has not sinned, the insinuation or the allegation alone against a leader can be enough to ruin his ministry and to cause others to fall away. And so the enemy isn't against using lies and gossip and false accusations and allegations to try and bring leaders within a church down. And so to protect against the attack of the enemy and false accusations, there was a need to have witnesses to whatever it is you're accusing an elder of. Not just someone who agrees with your opinion or, or someone who you know, believes your story, but an actual witness, someone who could testify of actually seeing or experiencing whatever sin or sins the elder is being accused of. Now, this does not mean that we don't do our own due diligence when it comes to accusations that are brought up. Okay? We don't just ignore individual charges. If someone comes and says, hey, you know, um, I was going to say Kevin, but I don't want to throw him under the bus. You know, uh, Kevin's uh, uh, one of the board uh, on our board here. If someone came and said, hey, you know, I saw Kevin doing you know, X, Y, Z, and uh, um, I'd say, hey, do you have any witnesses? You see him do, you know, oh, nope. Well, I'm just going to be like, well, I'm not going to listen to you at all. I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to talk to Kevin and say, hey, you know, this came up, and, and there's going to be some due diligence that takes place. Now, Kevin's above board. He's good to go. All right? But if that were to take place, there, there needs to be some sort of due diligence, and we would do that. There's definitely follow-up that needs to happen and take place. Okay? We don't just ignore individual charges. Okay? Uh, we have to have a responsibility to question and investigate things, but without any sort of evidence to corroborate an accusation, we are not to move forward with any sort of formal church discipline. That's what Paul's saying here, okay? However, Paul does say in verse 20 that those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. If accusations are brought forward with witnesses, it's found that an elder is in sin, then Timothy has an obligation to rebuke the elder. The word rebuke carries with it the idea of exposing them, of exposing their sin, of bringing it out into the light that they may be ashamed of their sin and turn from it. We must understand and realize the goal in all church discipline is for there to be godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And after there is true repentance, then the process of reconciliation can begin to take place. And and you guys, what that process looks like will vary depending upon the sin and the circumstances involved in each situation. There isn't a cookie-cutter mold that can be applied to every situation. It'll have to be something that's prayerfully considered and led by the Lord. You know, if someone is accused of doing, you know, a horrendous thing, you know, 
molesting someone. Well, there's going to be a, a, a different approach and a different reconciliation process uh, for that individual in comparison to someone who, you know, was seen, you know, cursing or swearing or something. And we might say, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing, you know, maybe they, they were found, you know, there's different levels, okay, whatever they may be. I don't, we don't, you guys have an imagination. You can figure it out yourselves, okay? The process is going to be different depending upon varying circumstances, okay? But the goal is repentance. The goal is restoration. The goal is reconciliation, right? Um, now, this rebuke that Timothy is to give is to be in the presence of all. What exactly is meant by this is something that's debated amongst Bible teachers and scholars. Some suggest that the context of this verse is referring only to elders. So those elders who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all the elders that the rest of the elders also may fear. Others suggest that no, this is referring to the entire church body, that leaders found in sin are to be brought before the entire church and rebuked in order to create fear in everyone else. I tend to lean more towards the first interpretation that this is something that's to be addressed amongst other church leaders, but I can see where a wider audience in certain circumstances may be warranted. I know of churches that do it both ways. Okay? Practically speaking, when it comes to church discipline these days, it's really difficult to adhere to this sort of example. Uh, most of the time, people um, who are caught up in sin or who are found to be engaged in sin, they simply leave the church uh, before it even gets to the point where they are brought before the elders or before the entire congregation, okay? Um, and so it's kind of hard, you know. Uh, back then, there was church community, everybody was kind of part of the same church community, so you couldn't just go from one church to the next, but in today's day and age, you know, you get in trouble over here, well, you just say, oh, well, I'm leaving, I'm going to go to this church over here, and, you know, you get in trouble over there, oh, I'm just going to go to this church over here, okay, and it's sad, but that happens, and so church discipline can be difficult to follow, uh, but it is something that's needed. I have had to go through this process with a couple people before. It is not fun, and it is something that causes a lot of pain, and it causes a lot of confusion amongst the body of Christ, and the enemy has a field day with it, okay? Paul also charges Timothy before God, Jesus, and the elect angels before all that is in heaven that he observe these things without, par without prejudice and without partiality. Prejudice speaks of forming an opinion before all the facts are known. You must judge these matters with a clean slate, you can't allow your own opinions upon an individual sway your judgment, whether that be the elder or the accuser. You can't let your own feelings get in the way of coming to a proper judgment of these matters. Partiality speaks of, of a decided and unjustified preference for something or someone. In these matters, it means you can't have favorites. You can't overlook issues because, well, this elder or this pastor is my good friend. Or, you know, I really like this pastor, okay? Or, you know what? He's really popular, and a lot of people might leave the church if we uh, discipline him, and so we're not going to do that, right? That is what would be uh, partiality, and, and Paul says, do not do that, okay? You cannot be partial. You cannot have favorites. You must not allow any favoritism to sway your decision-making process. You must let the facts speak for themselves and be sure to administer justice. 
Paul gives this charge to Timothy with all of heaven's host as witness. This is how Timothy must judge. He must judge as if he had heaven's perspective on this, seeing and knowing all things, making a fair and accurate judgment of the situation, ensuring that justice is served. You know, the correcting of elders is something that needs to be exercised with great patience, much prayer, and God's discernment. It is not something that's to be taken lightly, and it is something that we pray we don't ever have to do here, okay? Uh, but in times where it is necessary, Paul gives us some great principles to follow here that we will be sure to do so. Let's continue on this final section dealing with choosing elders in verses 22 through 25. Paul, he writes, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. The principle of not having prejudice nor partiality crosses over into this next section dealing with choosing elders. You know, when selecting people for the position of elder, Timothy needed to make sure that he wasn't just picking people that he liked, that he wasn't just picking his good friends or uh, yes men that would simply do whatever he said. There was a process involved in choosing elders. And here Paul speaks of that process and the need for discernment. Paul brings uh, up, uh, excuse me, he begins by stating that Timothy should not lay hands on anyone hastily. The idea of laying hands on someone was seen as a way of identification and agreement with the calling of God upon a person's life. We see this was the normal practice for installing elders within a church. The existing, excuse me, the existing leaders would come around an individual and they would lay hands on them in agreement and in prayer, acknowledging the call of God upon their life. We see it in the book of Acts when the seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, were appointed to the task of ministering to the practical needs of the body. Scriptures, ahead, uh, scriptures read, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. We also see it later on in the book of Acts when Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey, okay? As the church in Antioch was ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so the laying on of hands was a way for the church leadership to acknowledge the work God had already done, Okay? This is important to note and understand. When laying hands on someone and selecting them for the position of elder in the church, it really is simply man's acknowledgement of a work that God has already done. God is the one who anoints for service. Man simply acknowledges that anointing and appoints them to service within the church body. Okay? When we anoint someone for the position of pastor or elder, it shouldn't come as a surprise to the body. They shouldn't be like, that guy? It should be like, oh, he's not already a pastor? Like, isn't he already doing this? This is a, a common knowledge, right? There should be that sense or idea amongst the body when we anoint a, an elder or a pastor within a church. That it, Yeah, that's a no-brainer. Everybody sees and knows and has, can identify that the calling of God is upon that person's life. And so that laying on of hands is simply us acknowledging the work that God has already done. Now, 
When it came to the laying on of hands and acknowledging that work of God and appointing people as elders, Paul instructs Timothy not to do so hastily, not to do so quickly. Timothy needs to give it some time before appointing people to positions of leadership. And a lot of the principles involved with correcting elders can be avoided when you don't prematurely put the wrong people in the places of leadership in the first place. Okay? If it's, it's better to take the longer approach and be sure of God's calling and anointing for leadership rather than putting someone in there who really should not be serving in that position. Okay? Now, in connection to this command to wait, Paul cautions Timothy about sharing in the sins of others and keeping himself pure. Of course, leaders need to make sure they do not get caught up in any sort of sin, whether their own or someone else's sin. But I think what Paul is referring to here is based upon the idea that if we appoint someone as a leader who isn't ready to be a leader and they fall into sin, well, we become liable and responsible for that person. We share in the blame for our responsibility in placing them into that leadership position. We see this idea described in John's second epistle. There he's speaking about receiving deceivers and antichrist, but the principle remains the same. He states, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Certainly, if greeting someone and allowing them entrance into your home qualifies as sharing in a person's evil deeds, so too the leader who welcomes someone into the house of God as an elder shares in the sins of that elder. We become liable and responsible for that sin because we were the ones who put him in a place of leadership. We were the ones who presented opportunity for that sin to grow and for it to spread. And because of our placing him in leadership, we end up sharing in his sin. The goal and aim for Timothy is to be above reproach, to be pure or blameless when it comes to choosing elders to serve the needs of the body of Christ. Now, verse 23 seems to be sort of a parenthetical thought of what Paul said to Timothy about keeping himself pure. In chapter 3, Paul said that a bishop or overseer was not to be given to wine, the idea being he was not to be addicted to wine. But it would seem that Timothy took a more cautious approach. He decided to abstain from all drinking of wine. He only drank water. Now, this is something that's safest when it comes to the consumption of wine and alcohol. You don't have to worry about assessing how drunk you are or if you've become addicted to it, if you just abstain from drinking it altogether, right? I can tell you, since I quit drinking, I've never been drunk, and I've never been addicted to it because, well, I stopped drinking it altogether, right? But here Paul basically tells Timothy not to worry about partaking of a little wine for medicinal purposes. This would not cause Timothy to be in violation of what Paul wrote in chapter 3, nor would it be something that impacted Timothy's purity. Because Timothy suffered from stomach issues, presumably from drinking only water, okay? We have to remember, as they traveled from place to place, there wasn't, you know, purified bottled water uh, for them to drink. Um, and, you know, you guys know, you ever go to some places, you know, what's the, one of the first things to say, you know? Don't drink the water, right? Don't drink the water uh, because you're going to get sick. And, and it would seem that that was the situation with Timothy. Okay? And so Paul instructs Timothy, take a little medicine, 
for his stomach issues. Wine in that day was used for its medicinal purposes. Wine contained certain digestive probiotics that would aid in the digestive process, help maintain overall gut health. It was sometimes healthier to drink than the water in certain places. Okay? Paul is basically telling Timothy to take his Pepto-Bismol okay, or his antacids of his day for his stomach issues okay today we have a whole bunch of other medicines we use for stomach issues right i mean you've got tummy issues you you take some pepto-bismol you take some imodium ad you take some antacids or, or something like that okay that is what paul's telling him okay we must understand that this verse has absolutely nothing to do with social drinking or alcohol consumption as a drink of choice Paul is telling Timothy to take medicine for his sickness, okay? To try and use this verse out of context and say, well, Paul tells Timothy to drink wine, so we should all be free to drink wine as well. Or, to say the opposite, Paul only allowed Timothy to partake of wine for medicinal purposes, so we should only use wine or alcohol for medicinal purposes only, are both wrong, okay? This verse has absolutely nothing to do with the regular consumption of alcohol and whether or not we should or shouldn't partake of it socially, responsibly, or freely. We can't take verses out of their context and twist them to match up with our own convictions. If you want to know what the Bible says about drinking alcohol, well, read Psalms 104 or read Proverbs 23 or read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, or read Ephesians chapter 5, okay? This verse here in Timothy is not a text about the consumption of alcohol in regard to the liberties we have in Christ, and so please don't be one of those who tries to use it as such, okay? Verse 24 and 25, they get back to the idea and notion that Paul began in verse 22 about not laying hands on anyone prematurely or hastily. Paul states how some sins are clearly evident while other sins are only revealed later on. Likewise, some good works are very evident while others may not be revealed until later. Regardless, all will eventually be brought forth, whether referring to sins or good works. And so this helps to support the idea that Timothy take his time in laying hands upon people to become elders. Some people's sins are hidden at first. It takes time, careful observation in order to see them. We want to give time for people to prove themselves prior to being placed into any sort of leadership position. Faithfulness over time is usually one of the best indicators of God's leading and anointing for leadership. And so a season of waiting and testing is important when it comes to appointing elders. They must prove themselves faithful. But at the same time, we don't want to wait forever and never appoint people to these positions. There is a balance one that must be discerned from the Lord through prayer and careful observations. Placing people in leadership should never be done hastily. It is a process that should take time and should include opportunities for testing that an individual may prove themselves faithful. Okay? That is uh, one of the major requirements of a steward, that they be found faithful. And so here at our church, it's hard to do this. It's hard for us to have elders uh, that we uh, appoint into positions of leadership because we only get you for a limited amount of time, okay? And so it's hard. And I know some churches are like, oh, yeah, you, you can't even serve anywhere in our church unless you've been here for at least six months straight. Well, for some of you, that's half your time, and, and you're gone, okay? 
and, and so we have to find out a way to work around the situation in this community, in this church, okay? I'm really blessed that right now we have a couple local board members who are um, contractors, and they're here for more than just a couple years, and so it's a, a blessing not to have to, uh, you know, what it's been the case is we, you know, see someone, we identify someone, it takes time to do that, right? We test them, we give them small things, and they prove themselves faithful and faithful, and we're like, yeah, you meet all the needs, all the requirements, and we put them into that position of leadership, and then, you know, they're out the door six months later or a year later, it's like, all right, I'm PCSing now, and so it's hard, um, but that's how it looks in our church. It's a dynamic that we have to deal with, okay, and so it takes time we want to give opportunity for people to serve. We want to give opportunity for people to be raised up and uh, to positions that God's called them to, but we also want to make sure that we do our own due diligence. It's a, it takes balance and a lot of prayer, all right? So there we have it. These are the things that Paul had for Timothy when it came to the elders in the ministry, the compensating, correcting, and choosing of elders within the church.